The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. In 1865, an Irish writer known for his ghost stories published a satirical pamphlet lampooning the politics and politicians of his day. He poked fun in particular at the country's chief justice, who, his critics said, was too old to be an effective judge and was hanging on to his position even though he could no longer carry out his duties, simply because his conservative party was not in power and he did not want to be replaced by a Whig. And so, said Lefanu, we are judged by a man who once rode on a mastodon, hunting the megatherium. Harsh words. That was the scene in Dublin in 1865, and the object of the ridicule was a 90-year-old jurist named Thomas Lefroy. And we might not care so much about him now, at least here on the history of literature, except for one thing. Seventy years earlier, back when he was a student, Chief Justice Lefroy had had an encounter with an Englishwoman, whom we very much do care about. At the age of 19, just as he was turning 20, Thomas, or Tom as he was known then, was studying law in London. For Christmas break, he went to visit some relatives who lived in the country outside of London, and it was then, in 1795, as it turned into 1796, that his relatives took him to a few social events for the holidays. And, I'm starting to get anxious just thinking about it, it was then, (laughs) forgive me, a little breathless, the suspense here is killing me, it was then that our man Tom met and flirted with and stirred the heart of an Englishwoman who lived nearby and whose family was friends with his relatives. Her name was Jane. She was not famous or wealthy, but she had a spark of intelligence to her, which had found an outlet in her somewhat curious and unusual hobby. In addition to her letters and her duties as a daughter and sister, but never wife or mother, she was quietly writing novels. She was, of course, Jane Austen. And although she never married, she was once briefly engaged and she had several promising relationships or near relationships, including this dalliance with Mr. Tom Lefroy. She might not have married, but she knew romance's excitement and heartbreak firsthand. And we do believe that she knew what it felt like to be in love or close enough to it to wonder. And many believe that the first instance of this was with this dashing young Irishman, until circumstances drove them apart. We do know what happened after he left. Later that year, after the two of them had met at a ball, flirted, and he left, she began writing a book called First Impressions. Today, we know that book as the novel Pride and Prejudice. We will have the whole story of Tom Lefroy and Jane Austen, what we know and what we don't, what we might reasonably speculate, and what we can only wonder, today on episode 302 
of the history of literature. Hey, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, and I'm so glad to have you here today. We have a great show, a great, great topic. If you're not a fan of Jane Austen, well, I don't know what to say. I mean, you don't have to be. I'm not going to tell you what to like or not to like. That's not my job. But part of me thinks you have to at least respect this book. If you're if you're a fan of literature... This book, Pride and Prejudice, is on a very short list, along with Hamlet and Don Quixote and the Iliad and the Odyssey and what else? Crime and Punishment, the Metamorphosis. Pride and Prejudice is in that category. A handful of works so influential that the world organizes itself around these works. They have their own gravity, like suns, and the rest of the culture kind of wheels around them. Okay, so what we want to talk about today is this first relationship that Jane had with Tom Lefroy, the enigmatic Tom Lefroy, at least to some extent. It's a little hard to square Tom Lefroy, the politician and distinguished gentleman and conservative Irish judge, all those decades in the public life with the period when he was young and dashing and making his way around the balls in the countryside outside London when he was not famous and had no prospects, in fact, and when Jane Austen wasn't famous either, and the two of them just met. 19 turning to 20. I say he's enigmatic because that 20-year-old version of him has really only come to us through a handful of letters. The impression he made on Jane, as conveyed to her sister, Cassandra, in Jane's typically typical lively prose... Jane's letters are so good. The wit in her letters is so charming. If you like the books at all, if you like the voice in the books, you will love the letters, I think. She's so funny and so insightful and so self-deprecating. It all feels very modern to me. Sometimes the spirit of genius travels well, and hers has traveled for a couple hundred years and feels very modern even now. Seeing humanity for what it is tends to do that. Will the world find Jim Carrey funny in a hundred years? I'm not so sure. Will they find Christopher Guest funny? My guess is they will. Jane often has been stereotyped as kind of serene, having a straightforward life, even a bit of a cold fish. Her own nephew, who happened to be a man of the church, sort of started this with his biography of her. Her life was a smooth current, he said, untroubled and and so forth. Maybe he was emphasizing her virginity to protect her or to promote her as almost a sort of saint or nun. The family was protective. They didn't want her to come across as as catty, having acidic remarks about people she knew. Those were the letters that her sister got rid of, the ones where she kind of satirized the people close to them. They didn't want to hurt any feelings. They didn't want to turn her into someone who was too sharp-tongued. It makes her, he makes her out to be kind of the one who saw love for what it was, but gently from above, almost like a, an asexual sister or aunt. 
one scholar has counted at least 12 different lovers, not lovers in the sexual sense, but, but everything from matches made to flirtations to proposals to near misses to possibilities to an engagement that she quickly broke off. She was 41 when she died. Her romantic life with these dozen or so individuals, potential suitors, was a lot more eventful than her nephew's early biographical sketch might suggest. But our story today will focus on the first of these dozen lovers, the exciting moment when two 20-year-olds met at a ball. Was there pride involved? Maybe some prejudice? Can we see the seedlings of our beloved Lizzie and Mr. Darcy in these moments with Jane and Tom? And what does it all mean for us today? We'll have that story plus some listener emails after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. One of the most exciting things for literary biographers interested in matching up the lives and the works is how these two met at country balls, just like Lizzie and Darcy. And we're going to have more on this later this week, I think, as we really dive into the book Pride and Prejudice in a way that we won't have time for today. The societal ball was a fascinating part of the late 18th century social scene out there in the country, I feel right at home when I'm reading about them. I know what it's like to grow up in the country, of course, as you probably all know by now. And even in my little Wisconsin town out in the sticks, boys had to meet girls somehow. And for us, it was not an elaborate ball, although I did go to a cotillion once, which I think I talked about the last time we discussed Pride and Prejudice in detail. But mostly, I think about school dances in junior high school and high school, set up in the darkened cafeteria with the jukebox or in the darkened gymnasium with a DJ or a band. And sometimes the gyms were decorated if the event was significant enough. And sometimes the light seemed to be a little darker than usual. It was a constant battle with the forces of morality just how much PDA was permitted. And if PDA isn't a familiar phrase to you, it's one that dominated my thinking for about four years, five years. PDA, public display of affection. There were strict rules about it, not draconian rules in my school, 
There was some PDA permitted, but there were limits. Oh, my goodness. Those slow dances, the agony and the ecstasy. With some people so comfortable, kids who seemed totally at ease with themselves, and others of us who might be very confident in some areas of life, but totally not confident when it came to things like dancing or speaking in some kind of romantic way to someone. This is a little embarrassing to talk about, but ah, well, what can I do? We were all young once upon a time, right? This feels important to me because it's the world of Jane and Tom. For me, it was those school dances and the skating rink, roller skating, with the end of the night and the moonlight couple skate. <laughs> Those were the traditions at the skating rink. They always did the hokey pokey. They always did the limbo. They always did the moonlight couple. Where the lights would dim and they'd have a strobe. Not a strobe, but like spotlight, romantic spotlights swooping around the rink. Hmm then you'd get out there, you'd hold hands with a girl and skate around in a circle together, seeing others who were doing the same thing. I mean, this it's very mild stuff. Maybe there'd be a kiss on the bus ride home if the moonlight couple, if that had gone well. But it's probably just holding hands and skating around in a circle. And yet... It's Oh, it was enormously important. Even now, my heart is beating a little faster. You'd talk about it for weeks before. Who are you asking? Are you asking anyone to skate in the Moonlight Couple? Nah, not me. Or, oh yeah, well, I don't know, maybe. And for days afterwards, did you see? Did you see? Did you hear that Joel and Tina skated together on the Moonlight Couple? But I thought she was going with Troy. And I thought Joel would ask Lisa. It's very innocent, but it feels huge. When you're young, you see all these grown-ups and they're in love, supposedly, and all the movies and TV shows are about falling in love and all the pop songs are about love and you want to be in love. You know that's in your cards. Then you'll be a parent someday, you figure, which means that you'll end up with one of these people, these beautiful people, so cute, the ones who make your heart flutter. And your palms sweat, which is a horrible thing when you have to do the moonlight couple because your palms are sweating and it's so embarrassing. Sometimes girls are mean about it, even if they don't mean to be. Oh, I was skating with Eric. They'll say, and his palms were sweaty. (laughs) Poor Eric. Sometimes Eric, the Erics of the world, have a sense of humor or a lot of confidence. Sometimes Eric doesn't slink away in shame, mortified. To hear that the, the moonlight couple partner has been commenting on his palms. Mortified like me, frankly. I was one of the ones who would wonder if there was something I could do to make sure that my palms would not sweat. What do people do? Do they, they wear powder? Gel? Is there something you can do? How do you make your palms not sweat? The more you think about it, the more they're likely to. Eric's of the world, though, they could sometimes be cool and just laugh it off. Ha <laughs> ha, what are you talking about? Maybe those were your palms sweating. Oh, those Eric's are cool. They know how to handle it. And then 
it becomes clear that the girl was just teasing him, just flirting. She actually didn't care about the palms. She was just trying to play it cool, because actually, she was kind of falling in love with Eric. Now, that's me at about age 12, at about seven or eight years, so Jane is a little older, but still about that innocent. Not too far from that, and you have the world of Jane and Tom at these societal balls. Somewhere off, somewhere else, men and women are getting in trouble, going too far, getting pregnant before they're ready, falling into scandal. And that happened in my day, too. In my high school world, pregnancies were common. But at the skating place and the school cafeteria and the the ball of Tom and Jane and the ball of Lizzie and Darcy, things are pretty innocent, no matter what's going on in the outside world. The stakes are high. I don't mean that they're not. The stakes are high because we're talking about a potential lifelong love or a stinging rejection or a marriage and children and grandchildren and two families uniting. But these are just the earliest stages of that, and it's still pretty innocent. As I was reading about Jane and Tom, I also kept thinking about high school yearbooks. In my day, we would write in each other's yearbooks at the end of the school year, and you'd try to get just the right level of flirtation and admiration and appreciation into those messages in those books without seeming like a sap or a dork. And then you also you get to see what others have written. That's part of the that's part of the process too. You see a girl's yearbook, it's your turn to sign it. Maybe you've got a little crush on her, and then you see that some other guy has already written his little paragraph in there, and he's written something like, I'll never forget that night we stayed out past curfew and your heart just breaks. They did that. <laughs> what? Past curfew? I didn't know. Now I'm jealous. Or, I was signing a guy's yearbook once, and a girl had written, You should come over to shoot pool. Next time, I'll beat the pants off you. She underlined, Beat the pants off you, and I was just floored. What the hell? (laughs) Were they playing naked? Strip billiards? What was going on? Where was I when all this was happening? getting back to the innocent world and the point of this whole story was what I saw in one yearbook. A girl liked a guy. She had a crush on him. He liked her. The two were well known for being close to dating, but not yet dating. They were a bit of a an odd couple. They were from opposite sides of the tracks, so to speak. And it wasn't clear whether they'd get together. Her parents would not approve of him and his dangerous ways, and he might not want to spend time with someone so sweet and innocent. But he would probably be tempted to try because she was so popular. She wrote a message that struck the right tone for someone flirting but not trying too hard, and at the end she wrote, P.S. Try to grow a little taller. P.S. Try to grow a little taller. He was kind of short. Not too short, but not tall either. And there's something very similar that we'll hear in Jane's letters where she's talking about her first potential love, or at least the first one we know about. There's a lot of mystery in her love life because not all of her letters survived. Unfortunately, Cassandra did some some judicious scissoring, which has given us an incomplete picture. Sometimes we can only speculate. And even the letters we have only give us clues 
because it's an ongoing conversation. We only get one side and then we get gaps even in that conversation. So, but even if we don't get a a seamless narrative, we get Jane's voice, her pitch-perfect sarcastic wit, and these letters are a joy. I wish we had all of them. There were thousands. We only have fewer than 200. If you are lucky enough to be someone who corresponds with a literary superstar, please hang on to all of the correspondence. You might think you're doing your correspondent a favor by deleting here and there, but you're doing posterity a disservice. They're going to speculate anyway. So let them run with it anyway. I mean, don't let them just run with it. Let them run with the truth. Anyway, we see Jane. Actually, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Save this thought. We'll have more about this coming right up. Let's hear our listener emails. Then we'll return to the yearbook and the try to grow a little taller. And I'm going to stitch that together and explain why that, of all things, jumped into my mind when reading Jane's letters about Mr. Tom LaFroy. Here's an email from Monica. Subject, singular sensation, etc. Dear Jack, I want to thank you for including all kinds of books on your podcast, in particular, Singular Sensation, Michael Riedel's fabulous behind-the-scenes, blow-by-blow account of the evolution of various Broadway plays is fascinating. I just finished it and was transported back to the few plays and musicals I saw on Broadway. One year, my husband and I saved up and flew with our two elementary and junior high-age daughters to see Rent and Phantom in New York. Our eldest had been taken by the newness and freshness of the rock music in Rent and had been playing the songs incessantly in her bedroom. It was one of our best and most expensive and worth it family vacations. Literature, music, and art are all the blossom of life, and I thank you for all that you do to promote them. Sincerely, Monica, Austin, Texas. P.S. The day I listened to the broadcast of you imitating, I think, a turkey noise, I was driving in my car and could not stop laughing. I almost had to pull over. As I recall, you were losing it too, and it was one of the most joyful times I've ever spent driving. Please tell me which author or subject you were discussing so I may revisit it again. Oh, boy. Monica, thank you so much for your email. I'm glad you've been enjoying the show and that episode in particular. Every once in a while, we do a big zig here instead of a a little zig or a zag or what. (laughs) What does that mean? A big, uh, not just a, a zig when others zag, but a big zig. A zig even for us. Joe Para, the comedian, was one such show. And Michael Riedel talking about Broadway was another. Alfred Hitchcock films come to mind. Or that year I tried to invent a Christmas movie. Do you remember that? And tried to run it past our expert who who thought maybe Hollywood was not going to go for the idea of Jesus coming back to avenge his birthday. <laughs> oh, a disaster. Some of these subjects are... Not just literature, but literature adjacent, I guess. It's whatever's in the mind of Jack Wilson. When it's kind of like literature, at least. Speaking of which, I do not remember imitating a turkey noise. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying I can't believe I did that. Why? Why would maybe a maybe a listener has a better memory of that than I do? I wouldn't know where to begin. Gobble, gobble. I I wouldn't know how to imitate a turkey. (laughs) 
the turkey noise. That must have been one of those four in the morning, I'm all alone, is the universe a vast and empty wasteland kind of things. Howling into the void with a, a gobbling turkey sound. I'm glad it gave you some pleasure. Next email is from David. Subject, a quick thank you. I just discovered your podcast quite by random and was initially disappointed. Hey, David, <laughs> join the club. You're not alone. I hear from plenty of people disappointed. And you know what? I'm in the club too. Of course. You'll probably be, if you join the club, you'll probably be disappointed by the club too. That's just how it goes. What do you want me to do, David? You're disappointed by the podcast, so I create a club just for disappointed listeners, and the club is disappointing. Do we need a club for disappointed listeners, disappointed by the disappointed to the podcast club? Do I have to make that too? But don't you see that everything I touch turns out lousy? I will just create the podcast and the club for disappointed listeners of the podcast and let someone else create the club for disappointed members of the club for disappointed listeners of the podcast. And already I can hear people starting to type their emails to let me know that they are disappointed by my decision to refrain from starting the club for disappointed members of the club for disappointed listeners of the podcast. Thank you in advance for your emails, disappointed listeners. And yes, I feel bad about the decision. Can I save you... Some time that way. Okay. Let me start over with the email. David says, I just discovered your podcast quite by random and was initially disappointed until... Ooh. Ooh, there's an until. Maybe I spoke too soon. <laughs> I was disappointed until I listened more deeply. Ah, yes. David, you're winning me over. And realized that I had in fact been looking to compensate for my own laziness. Oh, I'm intrigued now. That is, David says, I was unconsciously hoping for some kind of potted Cliff's Notes version of great literature to fill some of the gaps in my own tardy reading. Now I understand that you are providing, at least for me, something incalculably more valuable, incalculably more valuable. Uniquely thoughtful sidebars and insights into these works of art, which, instead of substituting for actually experiencing them, offer perspectives not otherwise available and also encourage the listener to read the damn books or see the plays for themselves much, much better than potted summaries. So, please accept my deep gratitude, David. Oh, David. David, please accept my deep gratitude. You are my ideal listener. I'm sorry I ever disappointed you, even initially, but I'm so glad you have come to enjoy this humble little podcast for what it is. If this was potted summaries, I could not do it. I could not do it. I'd program a bot to read Wikipedia entries. It would be easier and cheaper, and the only way I could do it. I couldn't read those. I can't give you potted summaries. Where, oh where, would you go to get imitations of turkeys gobbling? <laughs> For that, you need a human being, or at least a Jack Wilson, I suppose, as human being as that ever gets. You need the guy in the ditch with a towel over his head. 
You don't need success. You need abject failure, right? Who better to provide that than me? Who better to wallow around down here in the murky depths where literature meets some kind of unconsciousness, subconsciousness, than me and Mike when he's available. Okay, one more break, and then we're into the world of Miss Jane Austen, age 20, and Mr. Tom LaFroy, who is her age minus one month, about to turn 20 himself after this. travel back to the world of our three letters. The three letters that give us the contours of this relationship between Jane Austen and Tom LaFroy, and a little bit of outside knowledge to help us put those contours that come from the letters in context. Jane Austen was born on December 16th, 1775, which means she has just turned 20, and actually Tom LaFroy was 19, about to turn 20 at these Christmas and New Year's balls that we're going to be talking about. She lived with her siblings in Steventon, Hampshire, the son of a father, George, who had come from an old and respected family of wool merchants. But the families had had kids and the inheritances were divided among the eldest sons and George's branch wound up in more or less poverty. George's sister went to India to find a husband. His sister's name was Philadelphia. By the way, how interesting is that? What a great name. Like Ramona Quimby naming her doll Chevrolet. A beautiful sounding word, Chevrolet, Philadelphia, when you take them out of context. George went to college in Oxford on a fellowship where he met Cassandra Lay, Jane Austen's mother, Lay, L-E-I-G-H. If you're wondering if that means that Jane was related to Vivian Lee, the Hollywood film star, the answer is yes, which unites in spirit Two of the greatest romances ever, Pride and Prejudice, written by the daughter of Ali, Jane Austen, and Gone with the Wind, where Scarlett O'Hara was played by Vivian Leigh in the film. Vivian Leigh's lover was Laurence Olivier, and she wanted to be in as many movies with him as she could, including the 1940 version of Pride and Prejudice, which she lobbied hard to be cast as, as Lizzie, but, and Laurence Olivier played Darcy, of course. If you've seen that one, it's a good version of Pride and Prejudice, but alas, it was not to be. The producer, David O. Selznick, blocked her appearance in that film. She and Laurence Olivier eventually got married, and they did a lot of movies together, a lot of plays together, but that one in particular, David O. Selznick did not want to see. Back to Jane in the 1770s and 80s. Her parents had only a modest, mediocre set of means. Her father was a rector, which gave them a place to live, a a ramshackle 16th century house that needed a lot of work done before they could live in it. George made a little money per year for his work, and Cassandra, Jane's mother, had some small expectations of an inheritance, not a large one, 
a small inheritance that she would eventually get when her mother died. That was the plan. But in spite of the lack of wealth for the family, the Austins, the family life was happy, seemingly, with some tragic events that punctuated the happiness once in a while. But it was an open and intellectual atmosphere, and Jane and her beloved older sister Cassandra were close. An early letter about them says, quote, Never were sisters more to each other than Cassandra and Jane. End quote. And Jane, we think, wrote hundreds, if not even maybe a thousand letters to Cassandra, most of which Cassandra burned or cut pieces out of. That's the tragedy we have as literary biographers. When Jane was seven, she and Cassandra were sent to a woman named Anne Cauley to get an education which started in Oxford, the town of Oxford, the city of Oxford, and then they moved with Mrs. Cawley to Southampton, where they caught typhus and nearly died. From that point on, they were educated mostly at home, until when Jane was about 10, they were sent to a boarding school at Reading Abbey, where the head of the school possessed, quote, a cork leg and a passion for theater, end quote. <laughs> Sounds like a person I would like. They learned French there, spelling, needlework, dancing, music, and maybe drama. And then, after a little less than two years, the school fees got too high, the family could no longer afford it, and the girls were sent home. It was the last time Jane had any formal schooling. Instead, she was free to read books, plenty of books in her father's library, and she listened to her father and her brothers as they went through their lessons. Her brothers were taught at home. And she was part of the family uh, for the siblings. The children put on plenty of private theatricals together. By age, They were written by them also. Her brother, for example, her oldest brother, wrote several. By age 12, Jane was writing her own plays to be performed by her and her siblings. They were comedies. And she, which is not easy to do, to write comedies that will make your family laugh, especially when you're one of the younger ones. And she was writing poems and stories, too. Now they've been described as boisterous and anarchic, close in spirit to Lawrence Stern, which if you've read Tristram, Tristram Shandy, you get a sense of what that must be like. We need to do an episode on that book. You can see how... Tristram Shandy would appeal to a young, wised-up, comedic group of people, satirists who poke fun at the world, including the stuffy world of literature. That's our Jane in her early teens. By her mid-teens, she had the idea that she might be able to write for profit, stories especially, and by 18, she was setting aside these the early anarchical spirit and trying her hand at longer and more sophisticated works. A young woman, then funny, experienced with her siblings, but largely confined to a small circle of family and friends, not allowed to go too far, but too far distance-wise away from her home, but intelligent and ready to burst out. That's the woman we have in December of 1795. Enter Tom Lefroy. He was from Ireland. He'd studied at Trinity in Dublin, where he'd done very well, and then he'd gone off to London to study the law. His uncle paid for those studies. His own parents did not have a lot of money. Tom had a lot of siblings, and he was expected, he had nine siblings. He was expected to make it on his own, which he eventually did. But at this point, he was a man in school, 
young and full of promise, single, available, intelligent, and visiting his country cousins for the holidays because they were within a few hours of London instead of all the way back to Ireland. So, now we turn to the letters. First, we have a letter from Jane to her sister Cassandra, who had recently had a birthday. Steventon, Saturday, January 9. In the first place, Jane writes, I hope you will live 23 years longer. Mr. Tom LaFroy's birthday was yesterday, so that you are very near of an age. Whoa. Whoa. Who? (laughs) Mr. Tom LaFroy, his birthday, the name just pops out. Hold this thought for a minute. I'll come back to it. Jane writes, After this necessary preamble, I shall proceed to inform you that we had an exceeding good ball last night and that I was very much disappointed at not seeing Charles Fowle of the party, as I had previously heard of his being invited. In addition to our set at the Harwoods Ball, we had the Grants, St. John's, Lady Rivers, her three daughters and a son, Mr. and Mrs. Heathcote, Mrs. Lefebvre, two, two Mr. Watkins, Mr. J. Portal, Miss Deans, two Miss Ledgers, and a tall clergyman who came with them, whose name Mary would never have guessed. I, I list all those out for you, just to, not because it's important to hear the actual names, but to just give you a flavor of the kind of thing Jane was telling Cassandra about. There was a ball. Cassandra's going to want to know who was there. Gets them on common ground. Jane writes, We were so terrible good as to take James in our carriage, though there were three of us before, but indeed he deserves encouragement for the very great improvement which has lately taken place in his dancing. (laughs) James is the eldest brother. This is kind of sweet. Their eldest brother was apparently not a great dancer. You can hear the affection that Jane and Cassandra are sharing. Their brother James was 30 at this time. Jane actually had, let's just tick through. She had six brothers and one sister. So James was born in 1765. He was the oldest. A year later, George was born. He had troubles. Edward came next, then Henry Thomas, then Cassandra, Cassandra Elizabeth, Francis William, or Frank, and then Jane, who had no middle name, Jane Austen, December of 1775. So this is all in 10 years now, the first four, five, six, seven of them. And then Charles John VIII was born uh, four years later after Jane. A little over three years, I guess. Okay, back to the letter. Miss Heathcote is pretty, Jane writes, but not near so handsome as I expected. Mr. H began with Elizabeth and afterwards danced with her again, but they do not know how to be particular. I flatter myself, however, that they will profit by the three successive lessons which I have given them. You hear this? It's like me at the skating place or the school cafeteria or the gym. Who's dancing with who? Who looked together on the dance floor? What's the gossip? And you can imagine the question in Cassandra's mind as she reads this is, What about you, dear Jane? How was the ball for you? Did you dance with anyone in particular? We get to that in the next paragraph. In fact, Jane says, You scold me so much in the nice long letter, which I have this moment received from you, that I am almost afraid to tell you how my Irish friend and I behaved. Imagine to yourself everything most profligate and shocking. Let me pause there. Is your imagination running wild? Dear listener, I paused the sentence in the middle, just like I did with David's email earlier. I found your podcast initially disappointing. Cut it off there, because that's where my heart stopped. 
I wanted to recreate that moment for you. And so I'm stopping here because I can imagine Cassandra, the reader, Jane's older sister, sharply inhaling at this point, her heart skipping a beat. Oh, dear. Profligate and shocking. What has Jane gotten herself into? My heart skipped a beat, too. But here's the full sentence. Imagine to yourself everything most profligate and shocking in the way of dancing and sitting down together. Oh, <laughs> Jane is so good, so clever. She gets, she takes us up the hill and then she lets us coast down. Dear sweet Jane, we had the profligate and shocking, our eyebrows raise, and then she immediately lets us know, I know what you're thinking. It was in the way of dancing and sitting down together. I'm not going to pretend here. Dear sweet Jane, I just love her. The sentence is perfect, perfectly balanced. Worthy of being in a great novel or a letter by a great novelist. Notice how she also said, you scold me so much. She's telling Cassandra, what was that about? You scold me so much, I'm almost afraid to tell you about my Irish friend. So we don't have the letter in which Cassandra scolds Jane. We just have the response. But in the context, it seems that the scolding had something to do with Jane's conduct. Maybe she was being too forward. Maybe she was being too flirtatious. Maybe, Cassandra was saying, everyone is talking about it, Jane. You at these balls. That's our best guess, or my best guess anyway. Which, again, is very sweet, especially for those of us who love Lizzie Bennet from Pride and Prejudice, because it sounds like the kind of thing that people might have said about her, too. Okay. So, Jane, I'm giving you the entire letter for this first letter because I find it hard to really appreciate her words about Tom LaFroy unless we have them in the full context of this letter. So she says, next paragraph, quote, I can expose myself, however, only once more because he leaves the country soon after next Friday on which day we are to have a dance at Ash, after all. He is a very gentlemanlike, good-looking, pleasant young man, I assure you. But as to our having ever met, except at the last three balls, I cannot say much, for he is so excessively laughed at about me at Ash that he is ashamed of coming to Steventon and ran away when we called on Mrs. Lefroy a few days ago. Intriguing intriguing. Look at that sentence in the middle there. Jane's usual impeccable grammar, her style of writing, which sounds like conversation. It stumbles here, and it's worth noting why. She says, he is so excessively laughed at about me at Ash. Look at those prepositions tangling themselves up. Laughed at about, uh, at, about me, at... At, about, me, at. It's because she inserted herself into the sentence. The about me is her modest little insertion. She could have said, they laugh at him, at Ash. But she says, they laugh at him, about me, at Ash. It's the kind of intel that a young person hears about others. Oh, they might say... When I was a kid, we had a sleepover, and Jennifer was there, and your name came up, Jack, and she started blushing. Right? Someone has been telling Jane something similar. Everyone at Ash, everyone there, 
his aunt and uncle and cousins, they're laughing at him. About you, Jane. We're teasing him about you. This is a promising development, something to consider, significant enough for Jane to put in her letter to her sister. She's not saying, I'm head over heels in love. I can't live without Mr. Lefroy, and I'm going to run away from home. She's not saying, I want to spend my life with him or anything like that. But, hmm, intriguing. I'm 20 and marriageable. You've heard tales of my conduct. You know there's this Irishman, I'm telling you. He's a handsome young man. He's pleasant. He's a gentleman. He's single. Our families know one another. Let me give you the scoop. We have met at the balls. We had a little chemistry between us, and I wasn't just imagining things. Back to the letter. We left Warren at Dean Gate in our way home last night, and he is now on his road to town. He left his love, etc., to you, and I will deliver it when we meet. Henry goes to Harden today in his way to his master's degree. We shall feel the loss of these two most agreeable young men exceedingly, and shall have nothing to console us till the arrival of the Coopers on Tuesday. As they will stay here till the Monday following, perhaps Caroline will go to the Ash Ball with me, though I dare say she will not. I danced twice with Warren last night, and once with Mr. Charles Watkins, and to my inexpressible astonishment, I entirely escaped John Lyford. I was forced to fight hard for it, however. We had a very good supper, and the greenhouse was illuminated in a very elegant manner. We had a visit yesterday morning from Mr. Benjamin Portal, whose eyes are as handsome as ever. Everybody is extremely anxious for your return, but as you cannot come home by the ash ball, I am glad that I have not fed them with false hopes. James danced with Alethea and cut up the turkey last night with great perseverance. <laughs> Jane is so good. Great perseverance. You say nothing of the silk stockings. I flatter myself, therefore, that Charles has not purchased any, as I cannot very well afford to pay for them. All my money is spent in buying white gloves and pink Persian. I wish Charles had been at Manydown, because he would have given you some description of my friend, and I think you must be impatient to hear something about him. Ooh, my friend, that's Tom Lefroy. Right? I think you must be impatient to hear something about him. This is a big deal. This is a big deal, this Tom Lefroy. Big enough that Cassandra is going to want to hear everything she can about him from Jane and from others. Okay, back to the back to the letter. Henry is still hanking <laughs> Henry is still hankering after the regulars, and as his project of purchasing the adjutancy of the Oxfordshire is now over, he has got a scheme in his head about getting a lieutenancy and adjutancy in the 86th, a new raised regiment, which he fancies will be ordered to the Cape of Good Hope. I heartily hope that he will, as usual, be disappointed in this scheme. We have trimmed up and given away all the old paper hats of Mama's manufacture. I hope you will not regret the loss of yours. After I had written the above, we received a visit from Mr. Tom Lefroy and his cousin George. Oh. <laughs> oh boy. The latter is really very well behaved now, and as for the other, he has but one fault, which time will, I trust, entirely remove. It is that his morning coat is a great deal too light. Let's pause there briefly. 
That's why I was thinking about the yearbook. That's the attitude. Only one thing wrong with him. His coat, his morning coat is a great deal too light. We'll come back to that. Jane writes, he, talking about Tom LaFroy, he is a very great admirer of Tom Jones. Let me pause there. That's referring to the Henry Fielding novel, famous for being racy. Jane had read this too, of course. Jane was herself an aspiring novelist. And with this comment, I think she's sending signals to Cassandra that Tom LaFroy is a kindred spirit. He's not just a gentleman. He's not just pleasant. He's not just good looking. He's a reader. He likes novels, including novels that maybe some of the more high-minded moralists might not like. He reads Tom Jones, Cassandra. (laughs) Can you believe it? Uh, back to the email. It says, and therefore, he's a great admirer of Tom Jones and therefore wears the same colored clothes, I imagine, which he did when he was wounded. Now, next day. That was on That was all written on Saturday. Sunday. By not returning till the 19th, you will exactly contrive to miss seeing the Coopers, which I suppose it is your wish to do. We have heard nothing from Charles for some time. One would suppose they must have sailed by this time as the wind is so favorable. What a funny name Tom has got for his vessel. But he has no taste in names, as we well know, and I dare say he christened it himself. I am sorry for the beach's loss of their little girl, especially as it is the one so much like me. I condole with Miss M on her losses and with Eliza on her gains, and am ever yours, J.A. Oh, let's keep going. There are only three letters that mention Tom LaFroy. This one comes five days later. In the first one, what have we heard so far? We've heard that Tom LaFroy has been at the last three balls, that others laugh about him in connection with Jane, that Jane knows his birthday and uses it to refer to a milestone with Cassandra in kind of a casual way. But you'd only really care about that if you cared about him, right? She calls him her friend. She knows Cassandra wants to hear more about him. We heard in an ironic style that they were shocking and profligate in the way of dancing and sitting down together. And Jane says he likes Tom Jones. And she says he's good-looking and pleasant and gentlemanlike, and he runs away sometimes. But then he also just shows up sometimes like someone who's embarrassed, but also kind of excited. He wants to stay away, but he can't stay away. Is this sounding like Mr. Darcy? A little bit, maybe. We'll cover all that next episode in more detail. And in that first letter, Jane says there's only one thing wrong with him, the white coat, which of course means everything else is right, doesn't it? We'll have more about that in a little bit. Next letter, five days later. Steventon, Thursday, January 16. I have just received yours and Mary's letter, and I thank you both, though their contents might have been more agreeable. I do not at all expect to see you on Tuesday, since matters have fallen out so pleasantly, and if you are not able to return till after that day, it will hardly be possible for us to send for you before Saturday. Though for my own part, I care so little about the ball, that it would be no sacrifice for me to give it up for the sake of seeing you two days earlier. We are extremely sorry for poor Eliza's illness. I trust, however, that she has continued to recover since you wrote, and that you will none of you be the worse for your attendance on her. What a good-for-nothing fellow Charles is to bespeak the stockings. I hope he will be too hot all the rest of his life for it. I sent you a letter yesterday to Ibthorpe, which I suppose you will not receive at Kintbury. 
It was not very long or very witty, and therefore if you never receive it, it does not much signify. I wrote principally to tell you that the Coopers were arrived and in good health. The little boy is very like Dr. Cooper, and the little girl is to resemble Jane, they say. Our party to Ash tomorrow night will consist of Edward Cooper, James, for a ball is nothing without him, Buller, who is now staying with us, and I. I look forward with great impatience to it, as I rather expect to receive an offer from my friend in the course of the evening. An offer? An offer? What? <laughs> an offer from your friend, Jane? Now, some people have jumped on that and wondered if it was an offer of marriage, but it's probably an offer to dance. Jane says, I rather expect to receive an offer from my friend in the course of the evening. I shall refuse him, however, unless he promises to give away his white coat. Again, the white coat. Some more news, and then she says, Tell Mary that I make over Mr. Hartley and all his estate to her for her sole use and benefit in future, and not only him, but all my other admirers into the bargain, wherever she can find them. Even the kiss, which C. Powlett wanted to give me, as I mean to confine myself in future to Mr. Tom Lefroy, for whom I don't care sixpence. What? <laughs> what? Back to the letter. Assure her also as a last and indubitable proof of Warren's indifference to me that he actually drew that gentleman's picture for me and delivered it to me without a sigh. Whoa. Okay, a lot there. She says, confine myself in future to Mr. Tom Lefroy. I'm not going to have a kiss from this other guy. I'm confining myself in the future to Mr. Tom Lefroy. But then she adds, for whom I don't care sixpence. Let's finish the letter. Wait until you hear this. Wait until you hear this part. And then we'll talk. It pauses on Thursday and resumes the next morning. This is how letters used to be. For those of you who are young enough, you've never written letters. You write half of it, your hand would get tired or you'd get interrupted. And you don't just, you can't just click send. You can't just wrap it up and click send. Maybe you're not finished delivering all the news yet. So you just wait. And then maybe you have in a different colored ink. <laughs> you start writing again. You have to note, okay, that was last night. Something just happened. Now I'm writing. It's the next day now. So here's Jane. Friday, she says. At length, the day has come on which I am to flirt my last with Tom Lafroy. And when you receive this, it will be over. My tears flow as I write at the melancholy idea. William Shute called here yesterday. I wonder what he means by being so civil. There is a report that Tom is going to be married to a Litchfield lass. John Lyford and his sister bring Edward home today, dine with us, and we shall all go together to Ash. I understand that we are to draw for partners. I shall be extremely impatient to hear from you again that I may know how Eliza is and when you are to return. With best love, etc. I am affectionately yours, J. Austin. That's the flirtation. That's it. That's it for this winter ball, this little period of a few weeks. He's leaving. Tonight's going to be the last night to see him. And then he's leaving. She says, I don't care about him sixpence. Well, she does, clearly. She keeps mentioning him. He's the friend, the friend. And she says she's going to confine herself to him. She's expecting an offer. It's not really marriage. She's kind of joking, too. 
She says, ah, well, I could take it or leave it. I'm trying to play it cool here. I don't care for him sixpence. But that's how it's like girls on the phone. Or today, maybe they'd be texting. In my day, they were on the phone or passing notes to one another in the hall. Once I found a note, probably it had been left for me to find. And it was about me. Said the girl thought I was cute and I was overwhelmed with embarrassment and secret joy. Might be one of the greatest moments of my life in retrospect. So amazing. Not sure I've ever felt better. And that white coat, too. That white coat. The way she talks about that white coat, that's familiar to me as well. That's like when someone would say, oh, you and your shoes with no laces, or oh, you with that old car you drive, or oh, you in these, your shirts with those wrinkled collars. You've heard people say things like that, right? They're not saying, I don't like you, but I like you kind of a lot. Enough to notice, enough to find it endearing, enough to care. And if this is the only thing I find wrong, that your socks are mismatched, or you have a missing button, or in Jane's case, you're wearing a a white coat, it means that the rest of you is quite good. If I said, you're mean, or you're awful to children, or you're nice but not my type, or you're immoral, or wasteful, or selfish, or you're stuck up, or you're full of yourself, or if I simply say nothing at all, those are potential deal breakers. If I say, I'll never speak to you again unless you promise to start tying those laces in your shoes, I'm being playful. When Jane says his flaw is that his coat is too light in color, she's all but saying he's marriageable. I'm not finding any other deal breakers. Maybe she's even saying he's marriageable and he needs me. I don't think he's perfect, but his flaws are not deal breakers. And maybe a little advice from me about what color coat he should wear would be enough to make him perfect. I could make him happy. He could be a better person if we were together. Try to grow a little taller. That's the phrase in the yearbook. Try to grow a little taller. In the wrong tone of voice, as in, you're too short. Or, he's too short. Oh, him? He's too short for me. That might be mean. But the way this comment read in the context of that yearbook entry, it was, you're perfect as you are. Everyone else thinks you're too short. I can live with it. I like the rest of you so much, I can overlook what other people would view as a flaw. But hey, don't get too full of yourself. You need to be nice to me too. I'm not head over heels or obsessed or blinded by my love or my need for you. I know you're a little on the short side. I know your coat is kind of the wrong color. I'm just choosing to tease you about it mildly because I'm not angry and I'm not seducing you either and I'm not playing hard to get and I'm not attacking you and I'm not letting you down easy. I'm flirting with you. Flirting is the state of promise. Of potential. You can hear Jane very excited about Tom in these letters. Tom LaFroy, she was talking and sitting down with him at the dance in a profligate and shocking way. He had the flaw of his white coat. She claims she doesn't care sixpence about him, but you don't say that about people you really don't care about. She says, I will flirt my last. My tears flow as I write at the melancholy idea. But this is a 20 year old mocking the idea of sentiment. 
in my opinion. I read that as she's got a tough skin. It's like when she writes from London and she says, Hi, Cassandra, I'm here in the the den of iniquity, land of the debauched, or something similar. She's exaggerating for humor's sake, but there's a grain of truth in it too. That she is in London, and it is faster. There is more sin there. She knows it. But she's exaggerating because she's saying, this is what everyone would say about it. I'm not taking that too seriously. I don't really think her tears were flowing at the melancholy idea. I think she's saying, ah, well, I'll survive. Maybe I'll see him someday if it's meant to be. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. Maybe he'll come back. Maybe I'll see him somewhere else. It's saying a little more than that, too. It's a subtle difference. It's not just indifference. There's affection there, too. If you ask a girl out and she says no, and you say, oh, sure, she turned me down, and and I stayed up three nights in a row crying, crying my eyes out, bawling like a baby, you're not saying that you actually did that. You're pretending that it doesn't matter to you. You're letting your listener know that you have things in perspective. You're not devastated. You can joke about it now. You can laugh at yourself for getting dumped or being rejected and how it made you feel. But you're also still revealing that you were upset a little bit. If you didn't care at all, you wouldn't write that. Jane and Tom were an item, sort of. And we see this confirmed in our last of our three letters, which mentions... Tom Lafroy, which comes to almost three years later. There may have been many letters in between that Cassandra destroyed. We just don't know. But this is what we have. Saturday, November 17th, 1798. Almost three years after they first met. My dear Cassandra, if you paid any attention to the conclusion of my last letter, you will be satisfied before you receive this that my mother has had no relapse. And that Mrs. That sorry, and that Miss DeBerry comes. The former continues to recover, and though she does not gain strength very rapidly, my expectations are humble enough not to outstride her improvements. She was able to sit up nearly eight hours yesterday, and today I hope we shall do as much. So much for my patient, not for myself. Oh boy. Is your heart pounding? Mine is. Okay. Back to the letter. Mrs. LaFroy. That's Tom's aunt. Mrs. Lefroy. Mrs. Lefroy did come last Wednesday, and the Harwoods came likewise, but very considerately paid their visit before Mrs. Lefroy's arrival, with whom, in spite of interruptions both from my father and James, I was enough alone to hear all that was interesting, which you will easily credit when I tell you that of her nephew she said nothing at all, and of her friend very little." She did not once mention the name of the former to me. Emphasis is in the letter there. To me. To me of all people. Right? Jane saying, everyone knows that he and I were clicking a little, so why wouldn't she mention his name to me? Why go out of your way to speak of him to others, but not me? Boy, what a coward. She didn't. Here we are. A couple years after this, this season where Tom and I were an item, and here she is, not once mentioning the name of Tom Lefroy to me. Still a, a live issue. Still some electricity there. Okay, back to the letter. Jane says, And I was too proud to make any inquiries. But on my father's afterwards asking where he was, I learnt 
that he was gone back to London in his way to Ireland, where he is called to the bar and means to practice. That's it. That's it. That's the mention of Tom Lafroy, and that was it for the two of them, as far as we know. What happened next? What happened next? What? How did this, why did this fizzle out? Well, it was an imprudent match. Remember the world we're in here, economics dominated marriages, of course. You know that if you've read any Jane Austen at all. Love was part of it, but only if the conditions were right. Conditions were important too. You might make a match for love without money, but that could sink the family. You might make a match for money without love, but that could end in misery. The best was to match money and love, which made everyone happy. That was the goal. Short of that, you had to make certain compromises in one direction or the other. And in this case, Tom's family had no money and neither did Jane's. So a match for love would be stretching it. And furthermore, Tom's younger brother, Anthony, had recently made a love match. So that was on Tom's mind. Oh, Anthony is kind of dragging things down. Can I really do the same? Can we really afford to have two of these? And there was yet another younger brother who knew what he was going to do. The best thing Tom Lafroy could do. Tom Lafroy, who had nine siblings, five older sisters, and four younger brothers. How's that? Five and five. He's the oldest of five brothers, and they all have five older sisters. The best thing he could do, or the most practical, would be to walk away from Jane Austen, the impoverished Jane Austen, and find a match who would come with money, a woman with a dowry, and that's what he did. Two years later, he married a woman named Mary Paul, who was more eligible, quote-unquote, unlike Jane, whose prospects had been mediocre, also in quotes. And Tom Lafroy and Mary Paul had six children together and lived another 50 years, and so that was a success, even if to us it seems like a tragic missed opportunity because Jane never got married. And we all want a happy ending for Jane, including a happy marriage. We want to think that that was possible. So that was it. A few nights at a ball, the reader of Tom Jones perhaps giving Jane a spark, some tantalizing comments and letters that make it clear that others were gossiping, that there was something between this Tom Lafroy and Jane Austen. Perhaps the two had some chemistry together. And there are a few other possible meetings for which we have no evidence, only speculation that they could have met here and there, but only because their calendars and locations would have synced up. And we think, well, maybe they did. We just don't know that they actually did. Here's what we do know. Later that year, after their meeting and after Tom's departure, Jane starts writing a book about a sparkling young woman who meets a haughty man at a ball. And the two of them learn to value love over everything. Maybe the greatest love story of all time on the short list. And that book, of course... Excuse me, there's someone knocking at the door of the studio here. Hello? Oh, someone with a harp. Hello, Hello? I'm Elizabeth Bennet. Elizabeth? Star of the novel Pride and Prejudice. The star! Here to deliver a morsel of news. Lizzie! Mr. Darcy and I are expecting... Oh, Yes. Huzzah to us. Huzzah. However, it is a truth ending. universally acknowledged that mm. a young couple in possession of an infant 
must be in want of some sleep. Mm. Fortunately, our impoverished neighbor, Mr. Jack Wilson, has offered to babysit our beloved little one, mm. so Darcy and I can catch some Zeds. Won't you yes. please support the cause of love, literature, and new life? We shall be eternally grateful for your good sense and your good sensibility. Oh, Lizzie, you just had to join, didn't you? You didn't want to stay any longer. Didn't want to stay away any longer than you had to. Well, I don't blame you, and thank you for stopping by. So, listeners, if you'd like to help support the show, The Cause of Literature, you can head over to patreon.com slash literature, where I, the babysitter of this new little one, will be doing my part for that little baby, who's probably about 210 years old or so by now. If you stop to think about it, but never mind. We're all using our imagination here, aren't we? The baby needs me. Literature approves. So, we've reached the end of our story for Jane for now. She writes, Pride and Prejudice. Mm, Same year. Same year after Tom LaFroy left, Jane digs in and starts her book about Lizzie and Mr. Darcy. There's a happy ending for Lizzie and Mr. Darcy. We don't know if they had children. That was just for the the begging of cash that happens once in a while here on the History of Literature. Oh, this poor little podcast. But we know, we do know that Jane and Tom never had children with one another, of course. They never got married to each other, and Jane didn't get married at all. She sent letters to her niece cautioning her against marrying, not for love. And we know Jane's views on that from her own life, too. We're actually going to have more on that on Thursday, along with an examination of the question of whether Tom and Jane are actually represented in Pride and Prejudice by the two famous characters. Were they the inspiration for them? How close are they in personality to Darcy and Lizzie? From what we know, there's been a lot of discussion of this, and we will have plenty to discuss. But let's finish up our story. Tom Lafroy. This is often called a one-sided romance We know from Jane's letters that she seems to have had this fondness for Tom. Jane loved Tom, let's go ahead and say it, and maybe she loved him as much or more than anyone else she ever loved. Maybe of all the twelve possibles, he was the one, the one who got away. There are only a couple of others she liked and many that she turned down. Could he really not have loved her too? Didn't the real-life Darcy, if that's who Tom Lefroy was, didn't he see what he had in the real-life Lizzie? And he was about to become a lawyer. They could have made it with money, right? Jane, in her letters, is so smart and witty and fun. She's one of the greatest women of her era, of all time. Did she really, could it really have been one-sided with a, a person of intelligence Did she really like a dashing young man, a smart man, a reader, an appreciator of Tom Jones, who just, could he really have just danced with her a few times, then broke things off for practical reasons and forget about her forever? Does marriage erase all that previous sentiment? Did he never feel anything at all? Didn't Jane make any kind of impression on him? Dear listeners, We have some good news, I think. Some tantalizing news that I think will make you happy here. If our goal is to see that, yes, Jane Austen, our beloved Jane Austen, was more to him than just one of 
A hundred young girls he met in his teens and twenties, just someone at a country ball, nothing special. We have some evidence that he maybe did think she was something special. Here's one. When Jane died in 1817, Tom Lafroy traveled from Ireland to England to pay his respects. Remember, Jane was the family friend of his aunt and uncle. Jane had moved away from them at this point. There really was no reason for him to go other than his fondness for her, the recollection of those Christmas weeks they had spent together, and maybe some other connections that they had had that have been lost to time. It's not like they were cousins or something. They weren't relations. There's no reason for him to go other than his respect or affection for her. Something he remembered even after he turned 40. Remembered those decades before when he and Jane had those that, that little spark between them at the balls. That's number one on my list of evidence. And it's huge, I think. You don't travel from Ireland to England to pay respects to someone if they meant nothing to you. I've got four of these. Here's number two. In 1869, this is now years and years later, Jane Austen is famous now. Her letters and papers were going up for sale by some of her descendants, nieces and nephews. There was a letter from a publisher rejecting an early manuscript of Jane's. By now, with Jane being such a celebrated novelist, even a rejection letter has some value. It's kind of funny to see a rejection letter from those early days before someone is famous. It's kind of funny that you idiots didn't know what you were turning down. It's like that assessment. What's the assessment of the young actor? Can't act, can't sing, dances a little. And we think, that's Fred Astaire, you dolt. Dances a little. (laughs) Or the one that says, yeah, guitar bands are on their way out. Yeah, right. That's the Beatles you're assessing. Trillions of dollars worth of guitar bands later, you idiot. So, a rejection letter goes on sale. The manuscript rejected was First Impressions, which, as we know, eventually became Pride and Prejudice. And who purchased it? Who bought the letter? Mr. Tom Lafroy. Now, take a breath. We don't know for sure that it was the Tom Lafroy. It was either him or it was his nephew. They were both named Tom. Either way, it almost doesn't matter. It's not as if these men were collectors of letters. They bought this letter in particular for a reason, whether it was the man himself or whether it was the nephew. The family, the Lefroy family, clearly was holding on to this idea. They had some room in their heart for what had happened all those years ago at those balls. They connected themselves to Jane, and in particular, felt a particularly close connection to the book Pride and Prejudice. First impressions. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? To know, decades later, this family is still thinking about Jane Austen. Young Jane Austen and her connection with this person in their family. Okay, that leads me to number three. The nephew, Tom Lafroy, wrote to one of the Austens, Jane's nephew, James, and said, My late venerable uncle said in so many words, 
that he was in love with her, meaning Jane, although he qualified his confession by saying it was a boyish love. As this occurred in a friendly and private conversation, I feel some doubt whether I ought to make it public. Mm. Boyish love. People have seized upon that. Boyish love. Oh. Oh, he didn't really respect her. He just felt boyish love. Well, that's... Let's not get too carried away with that. Boyish love. That doesn't mean it's not love. Boyish love. That's how love looks after you've been married for decades. You have children and grandchildren. It doesn't mean that the love wasn't powerful or significant or meaningful or even profound. It could have been very significant. It's a fond memory. And it's boyish love. It's a road not taken. That's what it is. Boyish love means, oh, I loved how she looked and how she smiled. And when she said something, I analyzed every word. And I thought about her when she wasn't there. And when she seemed to like me too, my heart raced. And when others commented on the two of us, I blushed. I thought she was funny and smart. And I felt good when I was with her. And I wondered if the two of us might someday be happy together. I could imagine her as my wife. That's boyish love. Boyish love covers all that. Young love. That's okay. That's a good love. But then, when you're old, out of respect for what you've shared with your wife, the decades you've spent together, that's a different kind of love. Not better necessarily, but very, very different. It makes the other love seem boyish. The love you have that you've shared with your wife That enduring love, the conquering love, the battle-tested love. You've gone through ups and downs together. You've gone through childbirth and raising children together. You've probably buried your parents together. You've gone through illnesses, lost loved ones. You've fought and made up. You haven't just seen each other at balls here and there where everything is set up to seem like a fairy tale or maybe here and there in a drawing room where you have a five minutes of conversation that you think about for days afterwards. No. Married love. The love that he had with Mary Paul. That's two people who live together. They've shared a bed. They've eaten meals together. They've traveled. They've made plans. Two people tied together 24-7. That's not to say that Jane and Tom couldn't have had all that too if things had turned out a little bit different. It's just to say that they didn't. Theirs had been flirtation and boyish love. But the uncle acknowledged, yes, it had been love. It had been love. He wasn't denying that. So there's one other thing that I have to consider. One other piece of evidence for you. There's three. There's, I told you there's four. There's one left. As the chief justice lived and lived into his Senior years, his politics were formidable, and this makes us wonder what happened to a Darcy had he not had a Lizzie to join him. The picture that comes down is that he's conservative, religious, morally upright, old, what do they call him, a mastodon, riding a mastodon, is a mastodon, maybe even a little stern, I won't go so far as to say mean, powerful, venerable, they say, a little set in his ways. Is that who he really was? 
is that the man that we think of as being the right partner for Jane? Might we think that being forced to leave Jane changed him? Did the economic circumstances that drove them apart, did that crush his spirit and maybe push him toward some of these curmudgeonly views? Don't we want to think this anyway, that if the world says, no, you can't marry for love, you must marry for money, that even if you sort of love the one you do marry for money, you still feel like you sort of missed out, that marrying for love would have been better, or at least there's something of value there that's been lost. Can we see that with Tom LaFroy in his later years? Is that what broke him? Is that what makes him think? Can you imagine a conservative politician? Let's get out of the world of conservatives today. Who knows what that is? But let's think about conservatives back then. If you're comparing conservatives with progressives, and progressives are saying, we can make things better for everyone, and conservatives are saying, well, let's not go too fast, because we'll probably make things worse. Right? Isn't that the kind of person who might say, oh, your plan to change the world for the better and make everything better, that's a nice boyish idea, right? Isn't that like boyish love? Yes, that's nice. I can admire your intentions. I can think, yes, I would love for that to be possible, but let's get real. You got to marry for money. You can't sink the family, right? Don't be boyish about it. Too bad if you have to give up the love. It's not going to work. You'll be miserable if you do it that way. Okay, right? We can imagine that maybe not being able to be with Jane, the one who made his heart flutter, might have started him down the path of being a little more practical and pragmatic and what would have been a conservative in the 19th century. Okay, Maybe that's a stretch, but I like to think that even so, he had moments of regret, moments of sadness for what had happened and the road not taken, even as he loved and respected Mary Paul, the woman with money, whom he married. He had moments, I like to think, where he thought about Jane and remembered her with fondness, enough so that he went to pay his respects after she died, enough so that he or his nephew purchased a letter talking about the rejection of the manuscript. I like to think that he remembered her fondly in those weeks at the holiday ball. And listen to this, folks. He and Mary Paul had a daughter, and they named her Jane Christmas. Jane Christmas Lefroy. My God, can you believe it? Jane Christmas. What would you name? If you were remembering this lost love, Jane, whom you met at a Christmas ball, what would you name your daughter? Jane Christmas. I have goosebumps just thinking about it. Now, cynics, maybe reasonable people will say there are actually reasons for that name. There were Janes in their family, and Christmas was a distant family name as well. That's probably where the name came from. And maybe it did, but even so, I can't help thinking that there's some harmony there. That there, maybe it was proposed as a way of paying tribute to other family members, but maybe Tom LaFroy thought, oh, isn't this nice? Isn't this nice too? 
would you just name your daughter Jane Christmas after meeting and being in love with a Jane at Christmas without at least thinking, oh, this will be nice. This makes me happy. This is a nice little bit of convergence as I move on to my new life. I also have this happy memory that's going to live on in this name. So, one more thing for you on Tom LaFroy. As we, this is how I understand the flirtatious boy who loves Tom Jones and has a boyish love for Jane Austen, and how he turned into the crusty old judge who clung to power so long that people started making fun of him. None of this is black and white. We're all shades of gray. So, in 1846, the judge is in his early 70s, clearly in the conservative part of his life. Jane, his young love, has died nearly 30 years before, and it's been 50 years since those days at the ball. So, he goes to visit a man with a new telescope, and then he eagerly writes to his wife about the visit. He says, quote, Yesterday was indeed a most interesting day. Lord Ross and his wife were as kind to me as possible. The wonders of his telescope are not to be told. He says, with as much ease as another man would say, come and I'll show you a beautiful prospect. He says, come and I'll show you a universe, one of a countless multitude of universes, each larger than the whole universe hitherto known to astronomers. The planet Jupiter, which through an ordinary glass is no larger than a good star, is seen twice as large as the moon appears to the naked eye. End quote. Judges and conservative judges especially can feel like they know the world as a flawed place. Humans are full of vice. They can be brutal to one another. This is how judges start to think after sitting in the courtrooms all day, hearing the stories of humanity. You never know when that nice man down the street is going to hit someone over the head and take their money, or when that darling little old lady will poison her husband. If you view the world in a practical way, you can develop the view that there's no point in hoping for progress, that things won't get better, and it's better to face reality for what it is. It's the point of view of a person who eventually decides that it's better to marry for money than to put one's family in a financial bind. But even conservative old judges steeped in practicality can open themselves up to more than that too. The man who can be excited about looking at Jupiter regardless of politics, is a man who also remembers what it's like to feel a sense of hope and excitement and wonder. That's the young man who Jane loved, I'd like to think. He still lived on in the older man, too. But maybe that's me, as I myself get older, and I try to hang on to things like hope and excitement and wonder. Not because they're warranted, necessarily, but because they are valuable. Not because they're sensible, but because they are good. Mm, Okay, that's going to do it for this episode of The History of Literature, episode 302. My thanks to our emailers today and to Jane and Tom. We'll have more about them on Thursday, including a breakdown of the economics that drove them apart and their connection with their fictional counterparts. We'll hear lots from Pride and Prejudice on that day. So tune in again 
You won't want to miss it. You can learn more about us and about LitHub Radio and all the Podglomerate folks at www.thepodglomerate.com or at historyofliterature.com. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Universe.